again, and welcome to Journey. We're glad you're here today. If you're a guest, it's great to have you in our worship together. Uh, we hope this becomes a place you feel comfortable coming back very, very often. Uh, we are in the study of the book of Acts, just kind of going through it verse by verse right now. And uh, we're going to be in the fifth chapter here in just a few moments. But before we get there, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered about the accuracy and the credibility of the Bible? Have you ever wondered about that? How did we get the Bible? And of course, that's a long story to define that. But maybe you're not really a skeptic, but you may wonder, you know, do we just kind of take this at face value or can we really trust the people who wrote this? And uh, how do we know for sure? Well, let me give you a couple examples here. Uh, let's take, for example, Luke, who is, happened to be the writer of the book of Acts, uh, which is the story of the life and the expansion of the early church and Jesus' followers. And, uh, and also wrote the Gospel of Luke as well. So he wrote two books of the New Testament. Well, there was a man back uh, many years ago named Sir William R- uh, Ramsey, who was a leading archaeologist in the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. He had some doubts about Luke and his historical accuracy. And so this archaeologist, this uh, scientist, he spent 15 years examining and seeking to disprove the credibility of Luke and the, the writings of Luke. But here's what he came up with, his conclusion. Luke is a historian of the first rank. The author should be, this author should be placed alongside with the very greatest of historians. More recently, there was a man here in the U.S. named Lee Strobel. He was a um, man who had his own doubts about Jesus and about the Bible and the church and everything. He was an award-winning journalist with the Chicago Tribune. He held that position about 14 years. He was a formerly trained writer. He was... uh, also a graduate of University of Missouri, I believe, and a law degree from Yale. So he was very smart. You know, he had done a lot of study, very secular though, and he felt that logic ruled every decision he made. That is until his wife, who was a self-proclaimed agnostic, became a Christian. And he couldn't imagine why she would, you know, become a Christian, basically with her uh, beliefs. And so he set out to disprove Christianity, kind of prove her wrong. But he came to his own conclusion. It was this. Based on scientific evidence, I became convinced that there is a creator of the universe, and based on historical data, I became confident in Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. He backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And Lee Strobel, there's been a movie or two made about his story, but also uh, he has an incredible testimony as an apologist about uh, Jesus and uh, does an incredible job and has a great ministry. But you know, in stories like this, we see that Christianity always bears up under the scrutiny of the critics because it's true. And we see the truth and the power, uh, not just the truth of the story, but we see the truth and the power of the gospel that comes out, and we see it clearly in the early church. And so we've been studying and kind of walking through this book of Acts, which is, um, again, a story of the life and the expansion of the church. And how God was working in a powerful way, not just in an organization, but more importantly, through His Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. So now we're in chapter 5 and verse 12, so we're going to start. And so let's jump in. It says, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. 
So as the church began to grow in numbers, uh, they began 120 people in one room. Uh, They soon outgrew that. They soon outgrew all the public buildings that were available uh, because there were thousands of people. And they began to gather publicly in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. And this was a large covered porch area. It was uh, actually built on and attached to the temple itself. This is where large crowds of people could come together and uh, meet or worship or whatever one wanted to do. And so the church began to meet there. Now think about this for a moment. The church was literally worshiping in the same building as the Jewish people were conducting services on the other side. So you got the Jewish temple worship and then you got Christian worship on the other side of the building. And you can imagine this is going to cause a big problem as we'll see here in just a few moments. But basically understand that the church is now publicly recognized. The church is meeting in public, in the open, and it's on the move. It's doing ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. And so from our scripture, there are several things that were clearly happening here. First of all, people were being loved. People were being loved. You know, Jesus had always had a ministry and a heart for what he called or what we call the least of these, those whose society has kind of discarded and thrown away, and and people that really didn't have a lot to offer to society And Jesus loved them and brought them into his kingdom, and the church was no different. You know, there are a lot of hurting people in our world. There are people who who are not connected. There are people who are not in community. There are people who are not, um, they don't count themselves to be like everybody else or as good as everybody else. And when those people are loved, they respond in an amazing way. And the gospel has the power to do that. The gospel is a message of love and a message of compassion for people, just giving people attention, just acknowledging them, just investing in them. And whenever we show love and compassion and meet other needs that they have, then that helps us lead, uh, be led to their greatest need, which is salvation. We get a chance to tell them about Jesus. And so that's what's being happen- happening here. They're being loved and served and then brought into community with the church. And so they're being loved. Second thing, people are being saved. That's very clearly, that was the purpose of the church, continues to be. The apostles and the Christians, it says, were highly regarded. They were regarded, but because there was public criticism, some of them were reluctant to jump in and even meet with them. Uh, In in fact, it it tells us there were some people who were kind of like Nicodemus originally. Remember that story in John, Nicodemus came at night to see Jesus. He was curious, but he knew what being seen in public uh, would mean to his reputation, so he kind of came at night. And later he became uh, public uh, and, and shared his faith. But at the same time, and in greater numbers, it says there were more and more multitudes of people who were hearing about Jesus and became believers. So the church was growing, soon numbered thousands and thousands of people, and the crowds just continued to grow. The third thing is that people were healed. People were healed. There are many signs and wonders were done. And you know, this would include things like sick people and crippled and deaf and and, uh, and blind and dumb and people that uh, had all sorts of illnesses, they, they were being healed. And the apostles did similar miracles as which Jesus had done. A lot of the gospels tell us about the miracles of Jesus and how people were um, brought to him and they were made well. In fact, it says here that they even brought sick people into the streets and laid them out so that maybe Peter's shadow would pass over them and they'd be healed. Now, there's not really any account that that actually happened, and maybe it did. We don't know. We do know it's a case where someone touched the coat of Jesus, just the hem of it, and they were healed. So maybe it did work like that. But they just brought people, and it says that all of them were healed. So maybe, maybe they were. You know, these healings that were done 
were not only done for compassion for people who were suffering, but also to reinforce the credibility of the apostles and the message and the power of Jesus Christ. You know, God has the power to heal any and everything, even today. We read about these healings and we think that people don't get healed anymore, but, but they do. And I've seen people healed through prayer many, many times uh, throughout the years that God said yes. God said yes to our prayers. But I would also say that I've also seen times when God, God's answer was later, not now, but later, and they were healed eventually through the resurrection. But understand that God has a plan for all of us. We don't always know what that specific plan is going to be. And we don't know God's will in every situation. But understand, too, that healing was a part of the church and Jesus' ministry and the church. Jesus, however, did not base his ministry solely on miracles. It was, in many cases, only to draw the crowd in. There were people that Jesus healed, even raised to the dead, uh, uh, from the dead, back to life again. But, you know, every one of those people got sick again. Every one of those people eventually died again because his greater plan was not for their immediate health and their long, uh, unending life. His greater plan was for them to receive eternal life so that they would overcome all death, including eternal death. But the healings generated more interest, more momentum in the church. So the church was really on the move. The fourth thing we see is that people were being delivered says they also brought people who were possessed by evil spirits, and they were healed. You know, before the creation of the earth, the Bible tells us that there was a time that there was a revolt in heaven that was led by a prince of the angels named Lucifer, and he led uh, uh, thousands of wicked angels against God and against the, the power of God, but they were defeated, and they were cast out of heaven, uh, cast down, and they became minions and uh, demons of Satan and tormentors of human, uh, humankind. So there's Jesus' team and there's Satan's team, and both of them are real. Don't ever doubt uh, the, the wicked, evil demons that are, that, are, uh, that are in our world today. They're out to oppose everything that's good. So Jesus came to save and Satan comes to destroy. And understand that both of them are spiritual, but not all spirituality is good or safe. Uh, we're living in a time where there is a focus on spirituality, but it's not about Jesus. It's not, if it's not Jesus-based, it has to be Satan-based. There's only two teams, no matter what it may be called today. And uh, ever since the beginning of time, there have been people who have been unwillingly possessed, and that seems to be what, what we're talking about here. And there's others who are willingly possessed by actually inviting spirits, evil spirits, into their lives. So uh, just like you would never invite someone you didn't know or a wicked person into your home, you should never, ever open up your heart, your mind, your soul to any spirit and invite them into your life other than the Holy Spirit. So there are some spirits that are wicked, evil, unclean, and dangerous, and, and they, they, they put people in bondage and uh, oppression, and they wreck their lives. You know, I've always uh, found it a little bit fascinating. In the Bible, there are a lot of instances of demon possession identified. Uh, they would say they have a they have a, a, a evil spirit in them, and they're oppressing their lives or possessing them. And in the Bible, we read a lot about those things, but they always identified it as demon possession. I believe that there's a lot of that goes on in our world today. I, I think there's still a high level of demonic possession today, but that we're not just quite able to identify it. I'm certainly, no expert on that, but had a little bit of experience, and it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes. Certainly, evil spirits work today in sin. They work in physical and mental illness, addiction, 
and another way to destroy a person's mind and body and soul. I really believe that. But in that day, the disciples were able to identify these evil spirits, and they gave the people deliverance, casting them out. And so it was an amazing time. The people got their right mind back, and then they followed after Jesus, and the credibility and the power of Jesus' of, of Jesus' disciples was shown there. Now, of course, this public ministry, everything was happening. The church, everything was going great. And it attracted a lot of people who came to be a part of the fellowship, but it also attracted opposition. And that's where we find verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So in that day, just like today, there there were two parties of leaders. These were religious parties, however. There was the Pharisees who would be called the legalist of that day, very legalistic. On the other side were the Sadducees who were the liberals, what might be called the progressive of that day. And uh, you know, so it, it was what it sounded like. It was religious politics and it was the worst kind possible. And at the time, the Sadducees happened to be in charge and they happened to have the high priest on their team. And so they were uh, call, kind of calling the shots. And they saw what was going on within the church. They saw that people were being loved and people were being healed and that people were being saved and or told they were being saved. And, and, and they were upset about that. The Bible says they were jealous, naturally jealous. And so what they said in their meetings were, this has got to stop. I mean, we've got to stop people being loved and we've got to stop people being healed and we've got to stop people being, have these devils thrown out. We've got to stop people being saved because we already saved them. They don't need to be saved. We've saved them. And that was their, their attitude in their heart. And so the problem was, is it was all losing control. They were losing control of the people, and they were jealous, and the motives were all wrong. And these Sadducees didn't have any power. They only had the religious position that they had claimed. And they didn't have the gospel, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit, and they didn't really have any, they can't do much but complain and exercise what little power they got, which was the legal uh, legal power. They had refused to acknowledge Jesus or the fact that his church was now in existence and, and that their system was being replaced with the church. You know, this is kind of religion at its worst. We talk about religion and sometimes people who aren't Christians, you know, they say, well, you're a religious person. I try to insist, I don't, I'm, I don't want to be a religious person. I don't want to be, that's not what, what Christianity is. That's something else that uh, is, is worse. Religious people don't care about lost people. And these Sadducees didn't really care about people or their needs or their hurts. Uh, they were only concerned about how they look on the outside or the control that they were losing. And unfortunately, there are still religious people today, even within the church sometimes. But religious jealousy was a big part of it, including, including uh, the leaders of that day who set out to try to get their power back. But, you know, I think about that and I think, you know, it, re- jealousy is kind of a part of our world today. I mean, even preachers, you know, pastors, we can be jealous of, of other people, right? You know, I mean, somebody else's church is growing faster than ours and we'll say, well, you know, they must be compromising the gospel you know, or they're stealing sheep away from everybody else. You know, we can be jealous sometimes, and that's always a sin. But these religious leaders, they took it to a new level. I mean, they went way beyond just feeling those feelings of jealousy. Here's what it says in verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. 
At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the apostles did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss wondering what this might lead to. So here they had already commanded or they had asked them nicely and then commanded the apostles to stop preaching Jesus. They decided we're going to jail the whole bunch. So they take uh, seemingly all 12 of the apostles and put them in jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord came, opened the prison doors, set them free, told them to go back into the temple and preach, and somehow did it in a way that the guards didn't even see him leave, and the, and the prison doors were still locked. But the jail was empty. And the guards, when they came to get him, and the chief priests, they were all confused. They, they couldn't have just disappeared. Where'd they go? And, uh, you know, it was very confusing, maybe even more so than the resurrection of Jesus, because at least the tomb was open there. They knew that there was no one there, but how did they get out? But as we uh, see, the mystery was soon solved. In verse 25 Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You know, I got a feeling they kind of felt like, uh, they felt kind of foolish, kind of like the Keystone cops, you know, running around trying to find people they had just locked up. And so they rearrest them again. Uh, and, and it kind of gives us some insight that they had an awareness of what their actions might cause among the people because they did it gently. They're like, why don't, why don't you come with us not to upset the people who were listening to them? But then they took them before the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body, the large body, what we might call a congress of some sort, and they began to question them. Didn't we tell you and then threaten you with the threat of death not to preach in in this name? I found that interesting. They didn't even say Jesus at this point. They couldn't even say that. They just said the name. You know the name we're talking about, you know? You're trying to stir up the whole city against us, make us look bad. They just wanted Jesus to go away. They just want him to disappear. And you know what? Down through time, people have tried to do that a lot, haven't they? To make Jesus disappear, that we don't want to talk about Jesus. But you know what? Jesus will never go away. And his name will never be lost. Because we are here to talk about and preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And you know what? I think we ought to say that name more often. In fact, I think it would be good for us this morning just to remind ourselves who it's all about. On the count of three, will you say, one, two, three, Jesus? Not very good. Do that again. One, two, three, Jesus. Jesus is who we need to be talking about all the time. He is a center of our lives. They knew that. They could not stop preaching Jesus, and neither can we. You know, Peter said this, so you don't want us to preach about Jesus, I just happen to have a sermon in my pocket right here, and guess who this sermon's about? It's about Jesus. And so he launches into a conversation about Jesus. Next verse, Peter and the other apostles reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. 
God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might be that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The thing that they feared more than anything, the name of Jesus, Peter jumps in again and reminds them again that they killed Jesus, but he had come back to life again. And also reminds them that we must obey God rather than men. And then he preaches, Jesus crucified, resurrected the Messiah, the Son of God, and calls these leaders to repentance. I mean, he doesn't have any fear whatsoever. You know, it's also interesting, I think, that the apostles noted that not only were they witness of these things, but also that the Holy Spirit was a witness as well. And instead of being intimidated, instead of cowing down and backing off, they were highly motivated more than ever before. And they're not going to stop preaching Jesus. In fact, they're just getting started preaching Jesus. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious the authorities were, and they wanted to put him to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put aside outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and then all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the consensus and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God or from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God." So they're in an impasse here. What do we do? We've told them what not to do. We've commanded them. We've imprisoned them. What do we do next? And they're ready to kill them. They thought, we just got to kill everybody. But then Gamaliel speaks up. Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He wasn't a party of the ruling, uh, uh, wasn't in the ruling party at the time. But he was well-respected. Many say he was the son of one of their greatest rabbis. And he said, let's hit the bricks, guys. Let's, let's cool off. Let's just slow down here. We don't want to kill a bunch of people here. And then it reminds them of, of history. A couple of people, Thutius and, Je- and Judas, not the Judas who betrayed Jesus, but another man previously who had led an uprising. The leader had been killed, and then the group fell apart. And he said, let's don't do anything irrational right now. Give it some time. Let's see what happens. If this is just a human effort uh, and this Jesus, this group, they're going to fall apart before long. But he says, seriously, but if this is of God, you can't stop it. You can't stop God. You can't fight God and win. You just can't do it. And so thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. Everyone kind of cooled down, and, and it picks up in verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been kind of worthy of suffering disgrace for the name capital N. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they, were stop, they never stopped preaching and teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So you say, well, they got off pretty easy, but the flogging, we think of flogging maybe just a slap or something, but that's not what it was. Flogging was a serious beating. They would be beating, beaten with about 39 lashes with a whip, and it was a serious beating. Oftentimes, the victim was killed. And so it was punishment for disobeying them, and it was a warning to stop preaching Jesus. But guess what happened? It didn't work. 
It had the opposite effect. The apostles left actually rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And the next day, or maybe immediately, they went back to the temple every day to preach Jesus. And then they took it to another level, going house to house and sharing Jesus. You know, we read the story about them, and we go, wow, man, those, those guys were tough. I mean, they just didn't give up, did they? But you know what? Instead of being the exception, that should be the norm. And you say, well, they went through a lot. Yeah, but I don't know if you know or realize, but, but you may have to suffer if you live for Jesus. There are people around the world, believers, who are, suffer in a similar and perhaps even a worse way. Many are put to death on a regular basis. Now, here in America, thankfully, we don't have that. You may not be beaten with a whip, but you may get beat up by somebody's words or with their words sometimes. But you may pay a price. It may be mockery. It may be insult. Uh, who, who knows what it will be? But, you know, Jesus paid the price for our sins. So you may have to pay a little price, a small thing, to maintain your allegiance to Jesus and to be a witness of him. You know, in that day, they got threatened and beaten, and they went out, and they went right back to church. And they went to church every day. Compare that to us today. As far as I know, none of us are threatened. None of us have been beaten. And yet many people don't go to church even one day a week. And I thought it was interesting. I read an article the other day. Do you know what factor actually tops the list as to why people skip church? Now, you're all here today, so you've got to pass on it, right? But you know what the number one reason that tops the list? The number one reason is the weather. The weather, whether good or bad, actually influences whether people go to church more than anything. A little bit of rain can discourage someone from going. We're not getting out in that. A storm can really discourage people. Out of the question. But on the other hand, if it's sunny and warm and it's a really nice day, then that too can make a person miss. And we've got to take advantage of these nice days, right, before, you know, it's going to get bad. So that really is a big factor. Isn't that, isn't that sad? And I was thinking, you know, if a beating would make people go to church and whether good or bad would make people stay home from church, then I wonder why God doesn't give us a beating every week, you know? But then I, I thought real quick, well, I think it's grace. It's the grace of God. It really is. That's why God's so good to us in spite of our selfishness and our focus and infatuation and everything else. See, God doesn't want us to come to him out of fear. He doesn't want to beat us to come to him. He wants us to come to him willingly out of love for him. And he wants us to just keep talking about Jesus. He wants us to interject Jesus into every conversation that we have. People ought to know that we're like some kind of Jesus freak. All they want to talk about is Jesus. We've got to be normal, normal people. But we can talk about Jesus and still be normal, right? We can love people. We can help people. We don't have the power to heal people. We can pray for people, though. We can love people and show them compassion and, most of all, show them Jesus. That's what we as a church are kind of all about. We want to invite you to come to Jesus. We want to invite you to turn from your sin and to trust him with your life. Surrender yourself to him in belief and repentance and confession and baptism. And then live every day in the name of Jesus. Live every day. You know, this weekend gave me another reminder of the frailty of life. The fact that life, we, we assume things are going to go on like they always are, but, but they don't. That sometime in the middle of everything, life isn't, is fragile. Life ends. 
And that should make us be so sober and think about that so hard. And ask ourselves right now, if this was my last day on earth, would I be ready to face Jesus? Would I be ready? And maybe even as a Christian, we might ask ourselves, I don't want you to doubt your salvation, but, but if you're not living the life that God's called you to live, then maybe the day is the day to decide to do different and to say from this day forward, it's going to be different. Maybe it's to give your life to Christ. Maybe it's to be baptized. Maybe it is to recommit yourself to him. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your next step on your journey is, but whatever it is, I would encourage you not to leave this room before you have made things right with him. I'm going to be up front. George is going to be up here to, uh, to, to share with you as well. If you want someone to pray with you, we'll be available to talk to you, pray with you, whatever it may be. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, every time I read the Bible, just something fresh jumps out at me. And, and Lord, this story that just tells about the life, the church on the move, and, and what they were doing, God, it's, um, it's what you meant your church to be. And Lord, I pray that we can be that church, a place where people are, are loved and where people are saved and people are healed through prayer. People find Jesus over the demons of this world. And, and God, that, that you're glorified in everything we do and say. And Lord, you brought us together today. Uh, there may be some that don't even know why they're here initially, but Lord, hopefully you've shown them a little bit of something of yourself today, that you're calling them, all of us, to you, Lord to be in relationship with you. And Father, I pray that all of us would commit our life, if we haven't done that, to Jesus today or recommit to walk closer in the life you've called us to live, to truly be alive in Christ. And that, Lord, all of us would go from this place with a burden to teach, to speak the name of Jesus. And I pray all this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship him through song.